And, and I want to start off by saying one thing so there isn't any confusion as you look at the outline I have put that we're going to go over 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14, not 8 through 14. And there is a reason for that. So I, I want you to know before you look at Eric and think, oh, is there tension between Cam and, and Eric? Did, you know, he covered that last week. That's not the case at all. I, I had a conversation with Terry, uh, and then I had a conversation with Eric, and, and it was funny in our conversation. Eric said, I was going to call you last week and say, you know, brother, 6 and 7, they do tie into verses 1 through 5, but it almost is better if it's worth what you're doing. But I didn't want to put added pressure on you to do more. And I said, I'm calling to say, hey, yes, it, it ties into verses 1 through 5, especially 5 because there's humility, but it really is a springboard through the rest of the chapter. So there's no tension between Eric and me. He, he covered it quite well. I'm just going to go a little deeper because there's only so much time that we have each time we stand before you to bring to light what God has laid on our hearts. So when you see that, that's not an error. We're going to go through chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Well, there's an American evangelist named Tony Miano and he was arrested in the summer of 2013 in front of Wimbledon. And if you're a tennis fan like me, you know Wimbledon is a huge tennis match. As a matter of fact, I've missed the final today between one of my favorite players. So if you're at Wimbledon, there are millions of people that show up over a course of two weeks to see people play tennis. And so Tony, he got arrested because he was presenting the gospel to this massive crowd. A and Tony, he, he was above reproach in the manner in which he submitted to the authorities. Because he was taken to jail, and he joyfully started singing hymns. And you see, not too loud to be obnoxious, but loud enough so that all of the officers in the jail could hear him praising the Lord. And he was released seven hours later. He flew back to America and briefly saw his wife. Then he got back on a plane and headed out to Canada where there was another large event where he could present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Tony said that while he was in jail, yeah, it was only about maybe seven hours, but he said he considered it all joy because he was actually persecuted for presenting his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us to expect persecution for being a Christian. It doesn't say you may be persecuted. It says expect it. And the Apostle Peter, he, he wrote his epistle to the church and believers in Asia Minor who were being persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he urged these Christians to live godly lives while they looked forward to the future hope and glory they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I've already stated, today our passage is in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 14. And, and the context of our passage, as well as the entire book of 1 Peter, it's, it's dealing with persecution. And it, when you look at who he's talking to, these, these individual people, these churches in Asia Minor, persecution was not an abstract idea. They were in the throes of persecution right then, right there. They were undergoing fierce repercussions for their faith. 
And so what Peter wanted to do, he, he was encouraging his readers to stand firm in their faith as they encountered this persecution that inevitably would come to every believer. And this encouragement it came in the form of promoting a biblical worldview among believers. And they needed, this was crucial for them, they needed to comprehend who they belonged to and then face their suffering from that vantage point. Just like every believer back in Peter's day who he was reading to, writing to, every one of us here today, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to keep that in mind as we face trials and persecution in this life. And then that begs the question, have you ever been persecuted for presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to anybody? And if so, how did you respond? Did you, did you consider all joy, as, as James says in 1-2? When you encounter various trials, you are, to, you are to be joyful about it. Or did somehow, some way, you think, God just turned his back on me. Why am I, why me, Lord? Why am I being persecuted? You know, about 15 years ago, a friend of mine and myself and he, we went out witnessing at a, an outdoor mini mall. And I'll never forget this, as long as I live, as we're presenting the gospel, it was to two gentlemen. One was very intent in listening, and the other one, he just kept pacing back and forth. Back and forth, and, and his countenance and his demeanor got more and more tense. And he started to use profanity. And we're like, whoa. And I kept watching him out of the corner of my eye because I, I literally thought at any moment he's going to wail off and, and just slam me. And, and sure enough, he, he didn't hit me, but he did this uppercut toward my groin and, and stopped about an inch within impact. And he looked at me in my eyes and said, that would have hurt. Well, guess what? He said, yes, it would. And that was the end of the gospel presentation. We slowly walked away as this man continued to hurl insults at us and use language that I am not able to repeat. So what we did is we looked at each other as we're walking away and said, Caleb, you know what? Satan doesn't want us out here. He does not want us to be presenting the gospel. And so that we are going to be persecuted. So we rejoiced in that and we just moved on to another section of the mall and kept on presenting the gospel to anybody who would hear us. As Christians, we should not be surprised whatsoever that persecution will take place in our lives. When we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are stepping in the bounds where Satan says, oh, I can't take away their salvation, but man, I want to thwart their efforts to present the gospel to anybody else. So persecution will come. And don't let that detour you away from being a bold witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, he said himself in the last half of John 16, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, persecution, it comes in really big, huge ways, small ways, and every way in between. But if you are a Christian, 
you can expect to be persecuted for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've titled today's message, Stand Firm in Your Faith in Times of Persecution. So please follow along in your Bible as I read the inerrant, infallible Word of God from our passage, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying to that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. So, in this passage, Peter gives believers four disciplines to stand firm in their faith in times of persecution. Discipline number one. It's found in verse 6. Humble yourself before God in times of persecution. We'll read it one more time. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So that word that starts off this paragraph is therefore, and it ties the previous verse, verse 5, with the current verse, number 6, in further instructions of Christians, their need to be humble. And his humility must be shown toward man as well as toward God. Since God gives grace to the humble, then you need to humble yourself before God and man is the idea. And humility, it means lowliness of mind or self-abasement. It describes the attitude of an individual that doesn't look for some high-profile position in the church or whatever it is so that you can be out front of people and get praise. It's, I want to serve the Lord in whatever capacity that I am allowed to serve, and I don't want any recognition at all. I'm here to serve the Lord. That's an act of humility. And maybe even more so than today, Humility was not a characteristic that was looked at well upon the first century pagan world. People viewed humility as a characteristic of, of weakness and of cowardice. And, and really, you only show that, that characteristic of humility in an involuntary submission of slaves towards their master. And in order to have a submissive attitude, you must have a, a mind given over to humility because you cannot be submissive if you are not humble. Can't happen. 
So look, look at the last portion of verse 5. It says, For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, that verse right there alone should cause every one of us here today that are believers, every one of us, we should adopt the attitude of humility because pride says, I'll do it my way, not God's way. But on the other hand, when we show humility, we are doing what God calls us to do and we get blessed for having a humble attitude. And based on Proverbs 3.34, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter here, he, he commanded his readers in verse 6 to humble themselves, which carries with that the, the indication that we need to be in submission. So they were to submit not only to avoid God's wrath and bring about his divine uh, wrath and bring about his divine grace, but they were to submit also because the authority over all believers was in the church is none other than the mighty hand of God. It was God's hand that delivered Israel from their slavery. And in the New Testament, it was his hand behind his works that really bring loud and clear up in the forefront of our minds. And, and most of which, those signs, they came with his signs and wonders, his miracles that we see through his son, Jesus Christ. But it also reveals judgment, which would include the death of his son, Jesus Christ, which Peter quite possibly could epitomize as the model for suffering of every believer. We look at Christ's suffering, and that's the model for our suffering. Therefore, Peter's audience was to see God at work behind their persecution and, and submit, allowing themselves to be brought low, knowing that God himself was in control of their lives and that he would exalt them at the proper time. You know, a, a verse in Malt, Maltby Badcock's wonderful hymn points out the, the, the enormous truth that God is in control in the midst of our suffering and persecution. It says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seemed off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Amen. Praise God that when we are in the midst and throes of persecution, we submit to our God who cares for us and loves us. He is the ruler yet. So when persecutions arise in our lives due to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't keep quiet and go along with the crowd when, when something comes up and they're blaspheming and, and promoting sin. We don't just keep our mouth shut and go, I don't want to say anything because I'm going against the crowd. No. We stand firm in our faith and we boldly proclaim what Scripture says no matter the cost. We are to be faithful ambassadors for Christ in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Because before all y'all and myself were, were saved, someone brought the gospel to us too. They were faithful ambassadors of Christ and we don't know who God is and isn't going to save it's not our job. And praise God, we don't know that because then we'd puff ourselves up going, because of my words. We are just to go, present the gospel, 
and let God do what he is going to do. And we know that, that one day God will exalt us. Even through our persecution, we will be exalted. So we, whether that phrase, the proper time in verse 6, means that at Christ's second coming or at another designated time of God's choosing, it really should not hinder us from grasping the great truth that at some point in the future, God will exalt us from our persecution. You see, a common theme in Scripture is that humiliation, it leads to exaltation. But we need to be aware that, that God's purposes in our lives, it's not, to, it's not to humiliate individuals, but out of our submissive attitudes before God, He may then exalt us in and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Pastor John MacArthur says, if the foundational attitude for spiritual growth is submission, humility is then the footing to which the foundation is anchored. To become proudly rebellious, fight against the Lord's purposes, or judge his providence as unkind or unfair is to forfeit the sweet grace of his exaltation when the trials has fulfilled its purpose. You see, think about it. So many times when we go through persecution or a trial in our lives, the first thing we say is, Lord, take, take this away from me. I don't want this financial situation. I don't want this physical uh, situation. I don't want this, this relationship issue I'm having. All of these things, take it away. Yes, we want it to be removed from us. I get it. But you know what? God allows us to go through trials to perfect us. He doesn't allow us to go through trials because he doesn't know how we're going to react. He lets us go through it to see how we now see how we're going to react. Are we trusting in our own flesh? Or are we trusting in the mighty hand of God at work in and through us? So I need to ask you, are you humble and submissive to God? Can you confidently proclaim what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.10? Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Remember, God desires humility in his people. Our second discipline is hand over your anxiety to God in times of persecution. Look back at verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So in Greek, the, the word anxieties, it's, it's implying being pulled in several different directions all at the same time, which is a very vivid picture of what worry does to an individual. So when believers are persecuted for their faith, here, they're commanded to cast all their anxieties upon God. This means that they're to stop worrying and trust. A and that word cast is dependent on the main verb in verse 6, which is humble. So that it's not a, a, a new command. It's just further continuation of the command to be humble. So in our humility, we are to cast 
our anxiety upon the Lord. And we find out that that God allows believers to, to undergo persecution for his predetermined plan in our lives. And so I still, when I go through trials, I will admit, first one, my first reaction isn't to say, thank you, Lord, I needed this, this was awesome. My first reaction is, what's going on? And then it's like I get a little firm, hey, wake up. I'm the same God that delivered you from the trial in the past, be it spiritual, physical, financial, whatever it is, I'm in control. My mighty hand brought you through it before, it'll bring you forth again. But that's not our first reaction. It's, but we are to submit to the Lord. And we know that he is in sovereign control. And you know, far too often we skip what's gonna, what I'm going to read right now. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But here's the kicker. Verse 7 doesn't take place until you have submitted to verse 6. So if you go back to verse 6, how are we supposed to bring our prayer request to the Lord? With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. And you know what? Is that a natural response for us to do? When we have trials in our lives, is it natural to just thank God for it? No, it's not. But guess what? That's the biblical response. That's what God calls us to do. Thank him no matter what situation is taking place in our lives. We rejoice in the Lord. Again, remember what James commanded in James 1-2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And in those various trials, James is definitely including being persecuted for your faith. So Christians are to humbly submit to God and then cast all their anxiety to him because the Lord sustains them with his grace and think about this. When you are going through a difficult time, we even heard Pastor Jonathan say it this morning, when you're going through something very, what, what, from outward worldly perspective, people think, man, you're going through a lot, and you have joy, what a testimony you are to people that have no idea. They don't know Christ. They look at you and go, how in the world can you be joyful right now when this is taking place? We're a wonderful testimony to unbelievers as well as a great encouragement to the body of Christ. To say, hey, you know what? That's someone that is submitted to God, casting their anxiety upon him, and look what God is doing in their lives. And I'm the first one to tell you, that's not an easy thing to do. But as we mature in Christ, it gets a little easier, a little easier with each trial that we face in life. And and you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, if I'm going to be persecuted for my faith, not, not could be, but if I am, give me an example of when someone was actually joyful, when they were persecuted, what did, what did it look like? Sure, all we have to do is go to Scripture. You can just take Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 4 and 5. You can read it on your own. 
the high priest and the Sadducees arrested them and said, do not preach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't do it. But what did, what did the apostles continue to do? They preached in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, the Sanhedrin council had the apostles flogged, which we know is a brutal beating. And the response, when they were released, the response of the apostles was not, my back hurts, or why in the world, Lord, did you let that happen? No, they rejoiced, went out there, praising God that they were deemed worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And did they keep their mouth shut after they were beaten? Nope. They just kept right on every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with joy. That is the James 1-2 type of joy. And the joy commanded by James, it is to be one of sincerity. And not just lip service, where we're checking a box going, oh, I'm humble, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm joyful, thanks, Lord. It comes from your heart that you're joyful knowing that you are doing and you are submitting to the will of God and you're under his mighty hand. So you need to change the way you think. If you're persecuted for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of having that attitude of, no, here it comes, I'm not going to do it, you go, you know what, Lord, I, I rejoice because it's drawing me closer and closer and closer to you. Because now, instead of me relying on myself, I'm relying on you. You're the one that gives me the strength. Through the power of your spirit, I press on and do the work that you've called me to do. As we saw today, we are to do good works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And we do it with joy. And it puts God's glory on display when we are joyful in all circumstances of life. You know, Adoniram Judson, he was the renowned missionary in Burma. He endured untold hardships trying to reach the lost for Christ. And for seven heartbreaking years, he suffered hunger and privation. And, and during this time, he, he was thrown into Ava prison. And for 17 months, he was subjected to incredible mistreatment. And when he was released, as a result, for the rest of his life, he carried with him the, this, these gross, ugly marks made by the chains and iron shackles that had, he had been cruelly tied to for 17 months. And you know, he, he got out of the prison. And undaunted by the, the numerous persecution and beatings that took place in his body over 17 months, he went and asked permission from the ruler of Burma to go to another province and continue his work as a missionary. And the godless ruler indignantly said, denied his request, saying this, my people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. Adonai was not hindered by his persecution for his faith. 17 months in prison, 
scars for the rest of his life, being shackled and, and chained. And yet he got out and the first thing he wanted to do, I want to continue being a faithful steward and proclaimer of God's truth to a dying world. He just kept going. Great men and women of Christianity have suffered persecution for their faith all throughout the ages. And it still happens today, every single day, all around the world. Faithful men and women of Christ are persecuted for the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we as believers face persecution, not because we're, we're, we're persecuted because we broke the law, but we're persecuted for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, great is our reward in heaven. And, and you know, I, I'm not saying, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we as believers actively pursue persecution. I mean, there, there, there's a fine line of when you go out and when you say things and when you don't. But what I'm saying is, if you are persecuted for your faith, rejoice in it. You are blessed by God. You may be persecuted in this life, but in the life to come, you will be rewarded and praised by God for your faithful duties for him. So in, in our persecution, we cast our anxieties on the Lord. But why? Why are we supposed to cast our anxieties upon the Lord? Well, look back at verse 7, the end. It says, because he cares for you. You see, we have a loving heavenly Father that has your best interest at heart. He's for you. He is not against you. And Peter here, he is quoting Psalm 55, 22, where it states, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. God cares about your concerns. God is not indifferent to what you are going through in this life. And you know, one of, one of the distinguishing characteristics that Christianity has uh, inherited from Judaism is the fact that the God of Scripture is known to be concerned with the personal care of his people. Praise God. Praise God because other religions at best see God as, as aloof, as, as one whom, while good and perfect, does not want to have a personal relationship with his kids. He keeps a distance. See, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need you doesn't need me but praise God he wants to have a relationship with you and with me the question is do you want to have a relationship with him I hope you if you're a saved then that should be the the utmost passion in your life is to become more like Christ I, I say it almost every time I get up here we read through scripture to understand God's attributes so that we can live a life of obedience to his word, submit to him, and become more like Christ. Not perfectly, but in that direction, we are becoming more and more sanctified and becoming looking like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, do you, do you understand that? That amazing truth that God literally wants to have a relationship with you? 
the God of the universe, the one true living God, cares about you so much, he personally knows every last detail of your life. And he's for you, not against you. And verse seven indicates that God's care and concern, it's not just a one-time thing, it's an ongoing, constant, unending desire and care for believers. See, God doesn't turn a blind eye to our suffering and just go, hey, I got you saved and now you're on your own. Good luck with the rest of this life. I'll see you in heaven. He doesn't do that. He's right there for us. And in our times of suffering, he he is desiring that we have an, an active, humble trust in him. Not on ourselves, in him. So in times of persecution, we humble ourselves before God and we hand over our anxiety to God. You also need to hold out against the devil in times of persecution, which is in verses 8 and 9. Look back at those verses. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So a a supporting idea for these verses could be that if you do not cast your anxieties on God, then Satan may gain an advantage over you. Therefore, be alert, be on guard, Resist the devil as you stand firm in your faith. And after God has allowed you to suffer for a little while, he indeed will exalt you. C.S. Lewis once suggested that there's two mistakes Christians make in talking about Satan. They either joke about him or they ignore him. And according to verse 8, neither one of these is an option. That's why Peter commanded his readers to be of sober spirit and to be on the alert. See, believers, we we must not overemphasize Satan's power, but at the same time, we must not underestimate his schemes. Because unlike God, Satan is not for us, he's against us. He wants us to fail in our Christian walk. So Christians, we need to be watchful like observant sentinels looking both ways at any sector knowing that the enemy could strike. We're not to be sleepy. We're not to be uh, just taking a a nap. We're to spiritually be awake. We're to be watchful. And even though we can't physically see Satan, we know the spiritual fact remains that he is always looking for a way to come against the army of God, find a weakness, and then exploit it. That's what he does. Again, he cannot take away your salvation, but he tries to ruin your Christian testimony. He tries, he does not want you to mature in Christ. So he looks for a weakness in your life, and boom, he goes for it. So Peter says, be on guard, be alert, stand firm in your faith. And you know, I mean, and why? I mean, Peter, he, right here in, in verse 9, he describes Satan as a roaring lion. And that's a great simile chosen because of the brute's nature as a cruel 
and ferocious beast of prey. The goal of Satan's prowling around is, is to try to find someone to devour. And, and that word devour, it, it's graphic, meaning to gulp down. So think, of, think of, a, of an animal gulping down their prey in just one big gulp. So I mean, think of it this way. If you're watching TV and the local news, and, it, and on that news it says that a lion from the local zoo has escaped, and it's known to be in your neighborhood, and it hasn't eaten all day long. Is that the time for you to grab your coat and say, kids, honey, let's go outside for a walk? No way. That would be foolishness. You stay in the house and you say, man, I've got to make sure that, that, that lion is out of my neighborhood. Christians are to be clear-minded and attentively looking out for clear and present spiritual danger. Peter knew what he was talking about because he failed to heed Christ's warning in the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ stated in Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I'm sure he remembered his failure and he's commanding believers now. Here's where he's saying, come on guys, be wakefully active, morally and spiritually and be on the alert against the assaults of sin and Satan. He's coming after you. Be on the alert. Don't let your guard down. Be ready to fight. So what do we do as believers? We do exactly what verse 9 says to do. We are to resist the devil and stand firm in our faith. That is what we are to do. James 4, 7 states, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Listen up. Scripture warns believers to flee from the various trials or evils of life, but Scripture never tells us to flee the devil. It tells us to resist the devil. We resist him by standing firm in our faith. And you know, victory, it's, it's not assured that clinging stubbornly to our own personal beliefs, no, but, but instead by us adhering to the glorious accomplished work of Christ on the cross where he, not us, defeated sin, death, Satan, and hell. And then Peter, he, he ends verse 9 with giving assurance to his readers that as they persevered humbly and submissively and firmly in the midst of persecution, that, hey, guys, you're suffering, but you are not alone. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you were persecuted and you, you, you just cried to the Lord, Lord, I don't think anybody in history has ever been persecuted the way I'm being persecuted now. We all go through that. No difference here. So Peter is telling them, he, he reminded them that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
And that word world here, it's not referring to the evil world system that's dominated by Satan. Rather, it's the physical Greco-Roman world that he's referring to. So believers in Asia Minor, they needed to understand that, hey, what you're going through right now, the persecution for your faith, it's not unique to you. It's unique, I mean, it's happening all around the Greco-Roman world. If a believer is faithful in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, they will be persecuted. It's not in this little isolated part of this world right here. Take courage. It's happening. Nothing new is happening to you, but stand firm in your faith. So as believers, all of us, all of us, we have to realize that God is in control and, and he does allow he doesn't cause it, but he allows this form of painful testing to accomplish his perfect work in our hearts. He's getting all the junk in our hearts and scraping it off and perfecting us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So we don't look at persecution as something awful. Ah! Yeah, it's painful, we don't like it, but, but we do need to change our mind and realize God is perfecting us through that trial. So you humble yourself before God, you hand over your anxiety to God, and you hold out against the devil. This brings us to our fourth and final discipline, which is hope in Christ in times of persecution. Verses 10 and 11, look back at them. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter, he starts verse 10, allowing his readers to know that their present suffering was temporary. So no matter how difficult their circumstance was, they would not last forever. But you got to catch this. E even if their persecution was to last the rest of their lives, it was a brief moment in comparison to spending an eternity with God. And we grasp that truth also from the Apostle Paul, where he penned in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Well, we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we look up, not around. And we see the mighty hand of God working in our lives. And we press on in times of persecution, knowing that our great God is directing us, our steps, and he one day indeed will exalt us. And Peter moves on in verse 10 to, to describe God as the God of all grace. And this title for God is only found here in the New Testament. And commentator D. Edmund Hebert said, of all grace characterizes him as the source and giver of all grace. All the undeserved favor bestowed upon us in our unworthiness. Having proved himself rich in his bestowal of grace in the past, Christians can rest assured that God will supply all their present needs. As I stated earlier, God is not indifferent to your needs. 
and what you are going through. And we can see that principle illustrated in the next phrase of verse 10 where Peter proclaimed, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This just further characterizes God because it shows the grace that he indeed bestows on his kids. You see, God effectively calls his own into his kingdom and service at the moment that you hear the, the, you hear the gospel and then you respond to it in faith. God draws you to his son and you accept that gospel message. And immediately you're saved and you're put into service. He wants you to serve him. So Peter's readers, they're Christians. And they had been called by God, which meant not only had they been delivered from their past sin, but now instead of looking back, they are to look forward to the future hope and glory that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their new goal in life. Not past sin, future glory. That's the same for all of us here today. We don't look at the news and get bummed. We look at the future glory that we will have with the Lord Jesus Christ. So these Christians, they knew that no matter what persecution they may face in their lives, their hope was in God's promise of future glorification in heaven where they would obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and would not fade away. God personally will use the suffering of his children to mold them into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And then Peter, he succinctly described the promise of that earthly sanctifying process of maturing in Christ by using nearly four synonymous words at the end of verse 10. He says, perfect, which, brings, which means to bring to wholeness. Confirm means to set fast. Strengthen is to make sturdy and establish. It's to lay as a foundation. So these words, they, they're implying strength and immovability, which God desires for all believers to possess as they face persecution in their lives. God places believers firmly on the truth of his word where they stand in faith and confidence until the eternal glory is realized. And then Peter declared a mini doxology in verse 11, I mean, where he gave the only appropriate response to this restorative and strengthening power of God by celebrating the grace and praise of God. He gives it back to him for everything he's doing in our lives, for saving us through his mighty hand as we submit to him he takes care of us. He's sovereign. All Peter can do is look up and praise God. Persecuted Christians in Asia Minor, they could take comfort in knowing God was in control and in the future day they would spend eternity with him. Therefore, they were to worship the God of all grace in the midst of their present persecution. By God's grace, us here today that are believers, we also must let our light shine among this perverse and crooked generation that so desperately needs to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And then lastly in our passage, in verse 12 and 14, 12 through 14, Peter, he makes some brief comments to end his epistle. 
In verse 12, Peter refers to Silvanus, which is also his name is Silas. So Silas, he was a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul, uh, and he was a prophet and he was a Roman citizen. And it was Silas who accompanied Paul on Paul's second missionary journey. And, and it appears as though Silas here was Peter's secretary in writing down the words of 1 Peter and then later being the individual to del deliver the letter to its intended recipients. And Silas, he was a faithful believer. And he was a faithful brother in Christ. And, and Peter held him in high regard. He trusted Silas so much so to write down his words of this epistle and then bring it to the recipients he intended it to be. And then Peter, he states in verse 12 as well, that his words in this letter were to exhort as well as to testify that this is the true grace of God. What does that mean? Well, well Peter here, he's referring to the entire epistle and everything that he has written to his readers, which naturally would encompass the fact that gr the grace of God through a marvelous salvation that was granted to them through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith that God gave them. And he bestowed it on them, and that is why he's saying that's the faith. That is the faith in the true gospel that there's a stand firm in. It's not in a false religion. It's in the truth of God's word, in the true Christ. And we've been studying that a lot in 1 John, one of the tests, is that we believe the gospel of the scriptures. And so Peter, all he's doing at the end of verse 12 is reiterating the truth of verse 9, where he exhorts his readers to stand firm in their faith. Be diligent. Not a one-time thing, not Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every day. Stand firm in the faith that you have because faith brought them to Christ and faith will strengthen them as they walk through persecution in this life. And our faith in Christ does the same thing for us today. What do you cling to in times of persecution? Do you rely on your own strength and your own knowledge? Or do you humbly submit to the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties upon him because you know he cares for you and you trust in his sovereignty that he, yes, we may suffer for a while, but he one day will exalt us and take us away from this to live with him forever. I exhort you to stand firm in your faith no matter what you face in life. And in verse 13, Peter probably is referring to Babylon as Rome. And it was in Rome that, that Peter wrote this epistle. You see, he, as he's writing in Rome, he doesn't want to let the Roman officials who are against Christianity know that he's writing from Rome. He doesn't want to be found there writing this or he does not want the church in Rome to be persecuted more so than they already are. So he uses a code name, that's Babylon. And then Peter, he, he does this. He sends greetings from the church. It's like if we were here and, and Tom, Pastor Tom went out to, to um, Grace Community Church and he comes back and says, hey, everybody at Grace Community Church sends you their greetings. Peter's saying that. Hey, everybody here in church in Babylon, they're saying hi. And then he also, he includes Mark. Mark is also known as John Mark. 
He's the author of the Gospel of Mark. And early on in his life, Mark also, he accompanied Barnabas, his cousin, and the Apostle Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. So he went to them, went with them to Antioch and to Cyprus, but then he later deserted them in Perga. So when Paul wanted to go back and visit the churches that they established in all these areas, Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and Mark said, no way. This guy deserted us. So Barnabas took, uh, took Mark, and Paul took Silas, and they went separate ways. And if you think, oh, man, that's brutal. Did they ever get back together? Yes, they did. Um, because we learn at the end of 2 Timothy, at some point, we don't know when, but at some point in their lives, the Apostle Paul and Mark were reconciled because Paul told Timothy towards the end of his life, and please bring Mark because he is useful to me. So they were reconciled. And Mark was also Peter's spiritual son, just like Timothy was Paul's spiritual son. And it's likely that Mark's gospel was the product of Mark and Peter's friendship where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark used Peter's eyewitness accounts of Jesus to assist him in writing that gospel. And then finally in verse 14, Peter says to greet one another with a kiss of love. So this doesn't mean today that we go up, if you're single, you're not supposed to go kiss uh, the opposite sex on the lips. I don't want you to think you have free reign to do that. That's not what he's talking about. What would happen in, in this time, men would kiss men on the cheek, women would kiss women on the cheek as a sign of love and affection. And we've been going through that in, in first service as well. One of the saving faith to find out if we're truly in the faith is our love for the brethren. So here Peter is, is definitely saying that we are to love the body of Christ. And then he ends his letter with a simple statement. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. See, even in the middle, right in the midst of persecution, believers have peace because they're in Christ. And one day they will be vindicated from their persecution and they will be with the Lord forever. So our passage this morning has taught us four disciplines to stand firm in your faith in times of persecution. So it's humble yourself before God. Hand over your anxiety to God. Hold out against the devil and hope in Christ. So if you are a believer here today and you incorporate these disciplines into your life, then you can have peace through any trial, any tribulation or persecution that you will face in this life. So what are our takeaways for today? It's this. Life is messy. It's messy. It comes at us hard and it doesn't always going to be a bed of roses. It's not always just easy as Christians. But when we are Christians and we are persecuted for our faith, we have to firmly remain steadfast in our faith in the Lord. You have to ask yourself this question. Do I believe in the sovereignty of God? It's very easy to do that when you've got a lot of money in the bank, your health is great, everything in your life is going well. Anybody can do that. Pagans do that. But what happens when the rubber meets the road? How do I pay my bills? I have cancer. I have marital problems. Do we trust in the sovereignty of God then? We must. 
We must trust in him. And they're not easy. God allows us to go through things and, and, and we get, again, we, we, we see the, the intent of our heart and we can see at times when sin is there and we need to confess it. I have to do that all the time. I can't read this and come up here and just go, this is what you need to do. I need to do it. We examine ourselves all the time. But we're to press on in our faith in the Lord and endure. And we're not just to, to endure, but we are to endure with a joyful attitude and live a life that is characterized by holiness for others to see. I mean, do you remember as a kid, if some kids are still here, I don't know if they still have this, so I'm dating myself, but do you remember as a kid these connect-the-dot puzzles? You'd get it and all you would see are numbers everywhere. So you'd start connecting the dot and, and little by little, you start seeing this image on the page transpire. And by the time you're done, suddenly all these dots turned into a boat or a dog or a butterfly or whatever image it is. Well, even though you may not be able to see the big picture during times of suffering, God sees the end from the beginning and he is the one that is connecting the dots because he is the one who has given us grace in salvation and he is leading us to our final glory. Resting in the sovereignty of God makes life way more bearable, knowing that everything happens in our life is for our good and for his glory. Now the first half of Psalm 55:22 states, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. This is the last quote and then I end. J.R. Miller has this to say about the promise of that verse. The promise is not that the Lord will remove the load we cast upon him, nor that he will carry it for us, but that he will sustain us so that we may carry it. He does not free us from the duty, but he strengthens us for it. He does not deliver us from the conflict, but he enables us to overcome. He does not withhold or withdraw the trial from us, but he helps us in trial to be submissive and victorious and make it a blessing to us. He does not mitigate the hardness or severity of our circumstances, taking away the difficult elements, removing the thorns, making life easy for us, but he puts divine grace into our hearts so that we can live sweetly in all the hard, adverse circumstances. End quote. God is the God of all grace. And he will sustain you through persecution. So remain steadfast in your reliance on him as he gives you strength to endure. Have hope. Endure joyfully and trust in the Lord. Stand firm in the grace revealed in Scripture because final glory will come soon. Father, what a glorious time that we've had today that we've looked in your truth. May we take it to heart, Lord, knowing that when we open our mouth boldly for you, you and you alone comfort us. You keep us safe. We keep us in our, our, our just peace in our hearts, knowing that we will be rewarded in heaven one day and that we get to be with you, Father. May we look around at this lost world and have compassion on others, not seeing sinners as the enemy, but seeing them as the mission field. May we be bold in our faith. May we trust in you. May we look to you and your word as comfort and peace as you strengthen and establish us and, and you bring us to final glory and we will be vindicated for our persecution one day in the future. 
Father, we love you. We glorify you. May our lives be a sweet offering and a sacrifice pleasing to you. We pray this in the beautiful, holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.